Well, life is full of choices and regret. We choose to teach our kids to walk and talk, and then we regret it as soon as we do. Because then they start running and getting into everything, and then they start talking, and we wish they would stop. We, uh, we taught our kids to walk and talk, we've, we've taught them to read, which we thought was a wise decision until a couple years ago when a junior little police officer started riding with us in the back seat everywhere we went, and he started asking, what's the speed limit? After we would pass the speed limit sign, not because he didn't know, but he would look at the speed limit and then the speedometer, and he just wanted everybody in the car to know that mom was not going the speed limit. I don't think it's ever happened with me driving, of course. I think it's, I think it's always her. Happy Mother's Day, Brooklyn, and all the mothers out there. Thanks for, thanks for making Lakeside part of your Mother's Day, joining us here and watching on the stream. Probably about three years ago now, came to a red light, and there was a sign that said, no turn on red. And I turned on red. And my son said, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I'm turning. He said, the sign said, no turn on red. I said, it did, but underneath that, it said, on school days. And today is not a school day, so I'm able to turn right on red. And he said, no, you're not. The sign said, no, right, no turn on red. Fifteen minutes later, we were still talking about my right-hand turn on red because I found myself arguing whether or not I was allowed to turn on red with a five-year-old. It only dawned on me after 15 minutes of arguing, he's five. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And then I just decided, you don't know what you're talking about. I know what the sign said. I turned right. It is fine. Sometimes we find ourselves in those conversations. Sometimes we find ourselves in those experiences where we just know more than the person we're talking to or arguing with or the person that's asking us questions. And this morning as we continue our look at heaven, we're going to start our look today with a conversation Jesus was having about the kingdom of heaven with a group of people that Jesus knew a lot more than, but who were still asking Jesus some questions and trying to argue with him. So if you have your phones or your tablets, we'd invite you to follow along with us today in the Bible app as we're going to be starting in Matthew 22, but we're going to be jumping all over the place today. If you're streaming from home, thank you so much for joining us. The verses will be available down below. The Bible app's available on the App Store of your choosing, no matter what kind of format your phone is. Just open up the App Store as long as it's a smartphone. Type in Bible. It's a great resource within the Bible app once you've downloaded it. It's a feature called Events. You can select that feature and either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201. Again, that's zip code 54201. Lakeside Community Church will pop up and there you can follow along with us. And if you're here and you just don't want to do technology, even though you should download the Bible app, if you don't want to do it right now, that's cool. You can follow along on the screens as we start today in Matthew 22, starting in verse 23, where Jesus is having a conversation with a group of people called the Sadducees about the kingdom of heaven. And this is where we join the story. The same day, the Sadducees came to Jesus now, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. For the Sadducees, this life is it. This life is it. There is no afterlife. There is no eternity. 
all the blessings or all of the curses are going to be experienced in this life. And sometimes we hear about people like that and we think the worst. We're like, okay, hello, serial killer. Like no concept of anything beyond this life. But the Sadducees were actually really good people. They practiced their own form of karma in an instant where, where they believed that all the blessings they would receive for doing what they should would be experienced in this life life. But Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And as people who don't believe in an afterlife, as people who don't believe in eternity, they're hearing what Jesus has to say, and they're going to argue. And they ask Jesus a question, saying, "'Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother.'" So if a man dies, now this is a hypothetical, remember this is is a hypothetical, but if a man dies and he has no children, they go back to what the Old Testament law said, what Moses had taught, and that is that if a man dies and there's no children, that your sister-in-law, if you're the second brother, the sister-in-law now becomes your wife. You're it. You're next one up. That's it. Now, at Lakeside, we love it. We love it when you talk about what we talk about, whether that's on the car ride home from Lakeside, whether that's after you turn off the stream. We love it when you engage with what we've talked about. You, you, you talk about insights that you have or questions that you have, and you as a family, you discuss it. Maybe let this one go. <laughs> Just going to tell you. There are no women in this. Ladies, have a happy Mother's Day, all right? You don't, you don't want to mention this to your husband. You know, if you were to die, one of your brothers. And gentlemen, please, please, by all means, just shut up. Just shut up. Because I promise you, if you're like, well, I would, I'd never want to marry your sister, then the conversation is going to be, well, what's wrong with my sister? Why wouldn't you want to marry my sister? What do you think's wrong with my sister? And if you make the grave mistake of saying, I wouldn't mind marrying your sister, <laughs> you're going to meet Jesus tonight. So that's just, listen, listen, it's just going to be easier for everyone, just easier for everyone we just let this one go, all right? This will just between you and me, and then we'll, there's plenty of other things we can talk about today. Just let this hypothetical one go by. But in the Old Testament law, and what the Sadducees are bringing up, it's sort of like an injury in, in sports. All right, somebody's out. Next man up. Next one off the bench. Let's go. That's just, how, that's just how it operated. And then they continued. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, remember the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in this scenario. They're just trying to argue. They're trying to trap Jesus with this hypothetical situation that they have brought up. So they bring this up. Now, in this scenario, what we can see, even in this scenario, we can see the faith of the individuals in this story. Because just imagine for yourself if you're brother number four. You've seen what happened to brother number one. You've seen brother number two go. You've seen brother number three die. And now you're up. 
If you're not a person of faith, you don't care what the Old Testament law said. You're out. You've seen how this has worked for the first three. So it's only your faith that's keeping you in the scenario at this point. And that's just brother number four. Imagine what you're feeling if you're five, six, or seven. I mean, at that point, it's just a walking death sentence. You know what you're in store for. And imagine the poor woman. I mean, seven brothers. Heaven help her. But the question that they're trying to trap Jesus with, the question that they're trying to trap Jesus with is they all married her. They've all, they've all had an intimate relationship. So who is married to her in eternity? Who's married to her in eternity? That's the question. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, this answer of Jesus, this answer of Jesus has brought about all kinds of misunderstandings. And those are some of the things that we're going to talk about today. First, this idea of no marriage in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven in, in, the, in the state that we think of marriage, where it's two individuals coming together and spending the rest of their lives together that that is exclusively for this world. But then the, the other part of Jesus' statement here has led to a lot of misunderstanding too, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It leads some people to wonder, do we become angels? And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But understand, there is no marriage in heaven like there is here in this world, here on this earth. Now, do not say amen to that. I know some of you are fighting it right now. Hold it down. Hold it in. Don't point. Don't do any of that. Understand it's going to be different. But before we talk about what marriage will look like in heaven, let's talk about the end of Jesus's response here. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So the question that this leads some people to ask is, does this mean God's done with us when we die? Does this mean God's done with us when we die? Remember the group of people, the Sadducees, who came to Jesus and tried to trap him with this hypothetical question. They don't believe that there's anything beyond this life. They don't believe that there's anything beyond the here and now, that this life is all that there is. And Jesus' response does not indicate that God is done with us the moment we die. No, just the opposite. Jesus' response is that God has a greater plan in store for us, that death is not the end of the story. Our death from these bodies is merely the end to the introduction, that God has a much larger story planned for each and every one of us who are individuals, who have souls, who go beyond this body. And God's plan for us does not end when we die. And the offer of God is that all would experience life, that all would experience life everlasting through a relationship with Jesus. That is what Jesus is talking about when he says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Not that God's done with you when you die, but rather that God wants you to experience life and life that never ends. And it's available to all if they will receive God's free gift through a relationship with Jesus. So, 
This idea that there's no marriage in heaven. I, a minute ago I said marriage is going to look a little bit different in heaven. You might be like, heretic? Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. Well, before you go there, just understand, there's no marriage in heaven like what we experience in this world, but there actually is marriage in heaven. And let me tell you why. Ephesians 5 starts, this, starts to paint this picture for us. Ephesians 5, 25 through the end of the chapter says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So there is marriage in heaven, but the marriage is between Jesus and the church. It's not between individuals like it's experienced here in this world. And I get it. I get it. Because all we have to go off of is our understanding of the here and now. All we have to go off of is our experience in this world. And we hear this picture and we, we see this parallel that's drawn for us and we're like, that's really weird. And you're right, it is. In our culture, in our society, in our understanding, we just look at this and we're like, yep, that's, that's weird. I don't get it. I don't know. It's, it's weird. Until we think about what's the best that marriage has to offer. What is the best that marriage has to offer? And the best that marriage has to offer, when marriage, is, when marriage is fulfilling and when it's functioning as it should, what marriage has to offer is companionship, understanding, security, lasting connection. And because marriage in the here and now is... is made up of two people who are broken and flawed. All of these problems are brought into the equation, all of these struggles, that marriage is really hard. All of these struggles happen, but the reality is when marriage is, is firing on all cylinders and when marriage is its best, what it provides both parties in the marriage is companionship and understanding and security and lasting connection. And that's God's design for marriage. And what we see here, this picture that we're given here, is what we will experience forever and ever with God, is we will experience companionship, and we will experience a greater level of understanding, and we will experience security, that we are His and we are secure, and we will experience lasting connection forever and ever with our Creator. This is the promise of heaven, and this is what God offers us. God reveals we'll experience the best of these things forever and ever with Him. And as hard as it is, as hard as it is, that is why marriage in this life, for those who choose to get married, and there's nothing wrong with anybody who makes the choice to stay single for the rest of their life. Sometimes people look at that and be like, well, there must be something wrong with that person. Just the opposite. There's nothing wrong at all with that person. Some people make that decision. It's not for everyone. So for everyone who's decided that they want to be married, we have to understand that as hard as it is, it's vitally important for us that we fight for our marriages and we fight for our relationships 
relationships because when they serve at their best and offer us companionship and understanding and security and lasting connection, they give us a prequel of that which we are to experience in the life to come. It's a preview for us of heaven and a preview for us of what we will experience with our Creator in God. Now, this, this scene is, is further fleshed out for us in Revelation 19. Now, understand, Revelation was written by the disciple, also known as the Apostle John. He was one of three Jesus' closest disciples, one of Jesus' three best friends. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. And in that, he's given a vision of all kinds of things as the world is coming to a close and we're given this view of his glimpse of, of this idea of Jesus and the church getting married in Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you understand what this is telling us? It's telling us that God has a plan for us. And God's plan for us is that we will be redeemed, that God will redeem us, that he will offer us bright, that we will be bright and we will be pure. And not only will God offer us redemption, but God will bless us as well, that we will be clothed in fine linens. And this is why it's absolutely vital for us to remember, especially when the hard times of this world come. And especially when all of the trials and all of the, all of the hardships that we face in this world come. It's vital for us to remember that this life is not our final destination, and this life is not the end of our story. And the offer of God to all of us who would believe in Jesus and follow him, the offer to all of us is that God freely offers us redemption. And not only that, but God wants to bless us in ways that are too great to even be imagined or fully understood. That is the level of blessing that God has in store for us one day for those who follow him. And then he goes on and he continues to write and he writes this. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This scene, as strange as it is to us, and I understand that it's strange to us, it was just that strange to John, who wrote it. It was just that strange to him. And yet, in this scene, What's so incredible is that John, who's one of Jesus' three closest friends, who followed Jesus for three years and saw him perform all kinds of miracles, and he saw God do all kinds of, of miraculous things. He was there when the church started. God used him under the guise of the Holy Spirit to write books that we still look back and we still see the heart of God revealed for us because it's Scripture through all of that. John sees this scene going on, and it's being reported to him by an angel. And what is his response? He falls down 
one of the best friends of Jesus, somebody who intimately knows God, he falls down and he starts worshiping the angel because the scene he has seen is that incredible. And the angel has to stop him and he says, don't worship me. Worship God. This is why our focus always, always, always must be about Jesus. And it must always be about God. And God uses platforms and God uses personalities, but the focus and the spotlight must always be on Jesus and never on the platform or the personality. But all the attention and all the honor and all the glory and all the praise belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. And here is John and he bows down to the angel and the angel says, no, 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 no. I know it's incredible, but don't you worship me. You worship God. And I just want to encourage you. Maybe you feel like you look and you're like, there's nothing, there's nothing incredible about me. Maybe you feel like there's nothing extraordinary about you, that you're just an average individual. I just want to encourage you. Congratulations. Because when we look at John and we look at the history of people that God has used, very seldom does God use the extraordinary. Very seldom does God use those that everybody would think, oh yeah, God's going to use that person. Much more frequently what we see in Scripture is that God uses the ordinary individual that nobody would have really thought about and accomplishes the extraordinary through them. So never for a second think to yourself, oh, I'm not enough, or I'm not good enough, or there's something wrong with me just because I'm an ordinary person. Congratulations, you're in the spot you need to be, and God will, if you will let him use you, God will accomplish incredible things through your life. So we see this scene, and it's incredible. And the question is, well, then, is, as incredible as this is, what does that mean about other people? Do, do we have any use for other people? Or are we just going to be so focused on God that that's all that heaven is? It's just us and our focus on God. And, and we saw a few weeks ago that we're going to remember people and we're going to remember events from this life in, in eternity to come. But is, how's that all going to work? And I want to bring you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. 1 Thessalonians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, a church that he loved, a church that, that he worked with, and he wrote these words, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. This is incredible. This is fascinating. As the Apostle Paul is writing about the coming of Jesus, he writes to the people that he loves, that he cares about, in a church in a city called Thessalonica, and he, he just asks them a question, what's our hope or our joy? What's our boasting? What are we going to remember? What are we going to reflect upon when Jesus comes? And he answers that question. He says, it's you. You are our joy, and you are our glory. What we see is that there is a deep affection for people. A deep affection for people. That people matter to us. People matter to us on earth. Because God has wired us that way. And that the relationships that we have 
in this world with our friends, with our parents, with our, with our children, with our siblings, with, with people that we come across. All of those relationships matter to us because God has wired us for relationships to matter. And in the life to come, it's not that those relationships no longer matter to us, just the opposite. If anything, I would argue the relationships in heaven are going to be even richer because gone are going to be all of our insecurities. Gone are going to be all of our sin. Gone is going to be all the things that hold us back. And instead, we're just going to be who we really are. There's never part of us that thinks we have to hold back. There's never part of us that thinks I can't be authentic with somebody because of this baggage or because of that scenario or that situation in my life. And gone is all of that. And we can have deep relationships with people. We're going to remember people from this world. We're going to remember circumstances from this life. Relationships matter because God has wired us that way. And it's not just in this world relationships matter. In heaven, relationships still matter. So if relationships matter, and if we recognize people, then the question is, well, how old will everybody be? I mean, some people think you're going to appear in heaven at the age you died. Other people think everybody's going to be 25, or, or some people 30. What's, what's the right answer? How old will we be? And I want to give you a definitive, I have no idea. I just, I have, I have no clue how old we'll be. But I want, to, I want to visit something from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah that I think can help shape our thinking in this. Now, hang with me for about 30 to 45 seconds, because this, this might get a little complicated, but just, just hang with me, please. Isaiah prophesies about all kinds of things in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. One of the things that he prophesies about is before the end of the world, there's a period of time called the millennium. It's a thousand years where, where Satan and all the demonic forces, they are kept. They're kept and, and they're, they're no longer able to do about their bidding. It's basically a theocracy in this world where Jesus will be in charge. It's called, the, it's called the millennium. And at the end of the theocracy where Jesus rules and reigns, everybody who's alive will have the decision to make whether or not they want to follow Jesus. And at the, end of, at the conclusion of the millennium, everybody is either in heaven or hell. Then we get to Isaiah eleven six, where he's talking about this period of time. And he writes this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. I mean, this is an incredible scene, like nothing we experience in this world. And I I don't know what they're going to do for nature documentaries during this period of time, because this sounds incredibly boring, and whoever David Arterberg or whatever his name is, you know the guy if you've ever watched anything nature, because his voice is the voice of nature, and nobody else can compare. I mean, I, he, he going to be unemployed, whoever it is doing that at the time, because this is just going to be really boring. All the animals are just laying down next to each other getting along. There aren't any chases. Nobody's devouring anything. It's just a really boring scene, but it's an amazing scene. It's an amazing scene of peace, like nothing we experience in this world. The, the, only, way you, the only way you could experience anything like this would be potentially in a zoo where they've tranquilized all the animals, so they're really not as aggressive, but here they are in their natural format, and they're not going after one another. I mean, Petting zoos are out of business because everybody can just go up and pet whatever animal they want to and not have their face bitten off. Like all of that, all of that's at play. And then he continues in verses 8 and 9. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, 
and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He goes on and he describes the scene. He describes the scene of little kids playing with cobras and vipers, and nobody's freaking out. And I cannot fathom this, because at the sign of any snake, I freak out, because snakes are horrible. And I know some of you are like, oh, snakes are fascinating. They're tremendous. No, they're not. They are horrible. And you're like, well, God created them, and Satan used them in the garden, and they should all go to hell with them, all right? There's no such thing as a good snake. I don't care what you say. And I know some of you right now, the wheels are turning. You're like, we're going to trap one and we're going to scare Brian. And that's going to be so funny. And then when I die, I hope you're arrested for manslaughter because it will kill me. There is no such thing as a good snake. But here we see that little babies and older kids, notice the, notice the age difference. Little babies and older kids are just playing with cobras and with vipers. Now this scene... The scene sounds like paradise. Why? Because God has restored everything to the way it should be. God has restored everything to the way it should be. And he has made things right. And that is a huge component to heaven. While this scene does not describe for us heaven, this, this mindset is a huge component for us of heaven. That God rights all the wrongs of the world. This is why I believe if you've ever experienced the loss of a child, this is why I believe that you will get to experience that child growing up in the life to come. Because God restores and makes right all that is wrong with this world. And as we celebrate Mother's Day, it's not lost on us that this can be a very incredibly difficult day for some people. If you've gone to appointment after appointment and heard those heart-wrenching words that we're sorry, there's nothing we can do, I don't think you're going to be able to have children. We know how your heart breaks. It's not lost on us the pain of losing a child, of a parent having to experience something that no parent should ever have to endure. And how that leaves a mark that never goes away and is always carried. But the hope of heaven and the promise of God is that He will make right all the things that sin has wronged. He will restore all that we and all that this world has messed up. And that's why I personally believe, and I could be wrong, but that's why I personally believe that in the life to come, if you have lost a child in this world, you will parent that child in the life to come. The question then is, and you hear this a lot of times around uh, the death of a small child, around the death of a baby, is if a baby dies, do they become an angel? And the answer to that question is no. Angels are a different class of created beings. 
And what if I told you that Scripture indicates it is angels who actually serve humans and not the other way around? Because sometimes in our culture, we think of this idea of angels as being these beings who are one step below God, but, but steps above us. And Scripture actually paints another story for us. Hebrews 1.14 says this, Are they, meaning angels, are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? which the picture of Scripture gives us is that it is actually angels who serve us. So never for a second lose sight of the fact of how much you matter to God. Never lose sight of how valuable you are to God. That God loves you and thinks you are valuable enough that He has created angels who worship Him and also serve you. This is how important you are to God. And then 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3 say this, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? We will join God in his work, and we will judge the angels. So understand that angels are entirely separate beings. They're a different created class than us, that God has created them, and they worship God, and they serve His people, and they do His bidding. So what do we do with all of this? Well, first, I want you to realize your immense value and your immense worth to God. Realize your immense value and your immense worth to God, that there are angels who worship God, that God sends out to minister on your behalf. The relationships in this life matter, that people matter, and God has wired us and designed us for people to be important in our lives and for us to have relationships. That we have worth to God, immense worth. And the offer of God is an offer of redemption and blessing. That the heart of God is that all would be redeemed that all would experience His forgiveness, and that He would make right everything that has gone wrong as a result of the choices that we've made and because we live in a world that is broken. And God's plan and God's desire is to offer you redemption for all of your rebellion and all of the times you've said, God, I know what you say, but I don't want to do it your way. And all the times you haven't known what God says, but just did it in a different way. God's offer to you is an offer of redemption. That God loves you and he values you. He desires a relationship with you. And not only that, not only is God going to redeem you, God wants to bless you. And he wants to bless you in ways that are far greater for you than you can even fully imagine. And sometimes we get an aspect of that blessing in this world, but the, the richest aspect of that blessing is in heaven and in eternity to come. And it's, it's to the point that it's so great that John falls down and starts worshiping the messenger just when he's given a glimpse of it, and the messenger has to redirect his focus to Jesus. That is how incredible and that is how great the plans of God are for those who follow Him. And as we celebrate Mother's Day today, we do so because we recognize there's nothing quite like a mother's love. We understand that. There's nothing quite like a mother's love. And yet, the promise of Scripture, the promise of Scripture is that God's love for us is even greater. And if you're a mom, especially if you're not a mom of a newborn baby, you can't fathom that. You can't fathom somebody having more love 
for your child than you. If you're a mom of a teenager, you're like, that's not really that impressive. But once they stop being a teenager, once they stop being a teenager, you realize, yeah, I, I love them again. That really is something. That's incredible. How can that be so? And that's the level of God's love for us, for you. He knows your mistakes. He knows your rebellion. He knows your shortcomings. He knows all of your flaws. And he still loves you anyway. And our hope and our prayer is that you would not run from that love. Our hope and our prayer is that you would make the choice to accept that love that God's offering you. And you would experience the redemption and the blessing that God freely offers. God, we thank you for our moms. We thank you for the incredible women that you've placed in our lives who have loved us and nurtured us, who have cared for us, who have challenged us and supported us. So today we just say thank you. God, I pray for those especially that today's a tough day. Who've been given the report that in spite of their desires, they'll never get to experience conceiving and giving birth to their own child. Lord, I just pray that somehow, in some way, you would comfort them today. Lord, as they're probably not going to understand your purpose or your plan or why that is, I just pray even in the uncertainty, you'd help them trust. Pray for the families who've had to do what no parent should have to, bury a child. And I pray, God, that you would comfort them in the midst of their loss. And that the hope of heaven and the promise of redemption and blessing and restoration would guide and comfort them today. Lord, help us not lose sight of your immense love for us. And I pray for the person who's rejected it or running from it, that they would just stop and they would fully embrace it. They would turn their life over to you, Jesus, and they would receive your forgiveness and they would receive your grace. they would experience the life that you've promised. God, we thank you for being a God who's greater than our rebellion. We thank you for being a God who offers redemption. We thank you for being a God who has a plan. We thank you for including us in it. Thank you for what you've done on our behalf. So with grateful hearts, we cry out, Jesus, in your name.